Welcome to Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla, Chorus Director and Associate Conductor at Vancouver Opera. Join me for this weekly podcast as we connect with opera experts, artists, staff, and others to explore the world of opera on and off the stage. We are honored to share our stories on the unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Today, we'll be speaking to Vancouver-born lyric soprano Simone Osborne. Simone was one of the youngest ever winners of the Met Competition in New York at age 21, and most recently headlined Vancouver Opera's 2019 production of Faust in the role of Marguerite. Simone is currently based in Frankfurt, Germany. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. It is my pleasure to be speaking with friend and colleague whom I've known for 15 years, beloved singer in Vancouver, hometown girl who's now singing all over the world on international stages. Welcome, Simone Osborne. Hi, Les. <laughs> it's very nice to see you. It's been a while. Our audiences last saw you a year ago, right around this time, actually, in the festival, singing Marguerite in Gounod's Faust. And I understand that you were in the middle of a show in Frankfurt when COVID-19 hit and things started to shut down. Tell us a little bit about that, because that probably was the most recent thing that you were up to. It was, yeah. And unfortunately, the last time I was on stage, like so many of us. So I was actually just beginning a run of Hansel and Gretel in Toronto at the Canadian Opera Company when I got a call from Opera Frankfurt. Um, my husband and I are based in Frankfurt, Germany, so it's sort of a home house for him, um, but I had never sung there. And they called and asked if I could jump into this piece called A Village, Romeo and Juliet by Delius, a British composer. Actually originally written in German, but we were going to do it in English. And it's an absolutely gorgeous piece, but not one that is very well known. And so when I got the email about it, I sort of had to do a frantic internet search and find a score and contact anyone I thought that might have had some encounter with this piece and um, decided to take it on. So I learned the piece in about 10 days um, between performances of Hansel and Gretel. And I need to acknowledge the pianist Andrea Grant for saving me and getting me through that. There's no other way that it would have been possible to learn it and memorize it in such a short time. And so we closed Hansel and Gretel um, near the end of February. The next morning, I was on a plane to Germany um, with, you know, two and a half months worth of luggage with me, <laughs> all packed up from my rental apartment in Toronto. Um, and the, that day I arrived in Germany and started rehearsals. So started staging rehearsals, staged the piece in, I think, six days, and then had a Zitzprobe, and then, which is an orchestra rehearsal, and then one stage rehearsal. Um, and it's a rotating set on two rotating sort of lazy Susans, one inside the other. And so I was quite literally never standing still, um, always walking against the grain or with the grain, basically to say to stay on stage, which was very challenging because we didn't have that to rehearse with. And then we were on stage for opening night and it was sort of a whirlwind. And my husband and I had already planned for his parents to come and visit us here in Frankfurt because he was doing, um, he was singing Escamillo, the Toreador in Carmen in this great Barry Kosky production here in Frankfurt. So they came, they were already planning to come for his closing night. And it just so happened that my opening night of the Delius was the night before his closing night of Carmen. And then we had a full about eight days off 
So before the Delius came up, we had planned on a little family holiday to Portugal because as lovely as Frankfurt is in March, the weather can be sort of Vancouver-like and gray and um, there's not all that much to see. Um, so we decided that we would go to Portugal. So we were in Portugal between show one and two for me when everything started getting quite serious in Europe. And um, the first, I remember the first case of COVID we found out about was in Stuttgart, which is not far from where we live in Frankfurt. And I remember saying in one of our last rehearsals, you guys don't think that they would ever close the opera house here because I had a colleague who was um, making his debut at La Scala in Zalame and they canceled just before opening night. So that was heartbreaking for them, of course, but had to be done. And everyone in the room said, oh, no, 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 they'd never do that. Germany would never close the theaters. Don't worry, it won't happen. So we go to Portugal and within about three days, it becomes clear that not only will the Delius not happen, but Peter Grimes that I was supposed to jump into here right after that wouldn't happen. And then, it, you know, everything just sort of, it was a domino effect and, and um, life became very different. And so it turned into a really nice second half of the holiday because there was absolutely, you know, nothing to keep my voice in shape for, nothing to be stressed about. It definitely, if I look back on that time, we were sort of joking about being in the best possible place and being so safe and happy. And now, you know, COVID has just run rampant all across Europe. So very lucky to be happy and healthy. I was very fortunate to get through opening night, but um, it, it was pretty heartbreaking to leave that project when so much intense work had gone into it. And then we didn't really get to explore it, you know, with more performances. I'm I'm grateful to have made it to opening. <laughs> That's quite amazing that you jumped in. Again, it, it, that is a work I know it by title, and but I, I don't really know. There's that wonderful, wonderful interlude, the Walk to Paradise Gardens, which of course I, oh, you know is so a beautiful gorgeous. piece, which which uh, symphony orchestra program all the time. But the opera, I'd be surprised if it's ever been done in Canada. I don't know for sure, but um, I doubt and it. To learn that in such a short amount of time, and then to only have six days. And then I've never heard of this, the one being on a rotating stage the whole time. So, and you oh, only yes. had one, one crack at that. Yeah. There That's was one point crazy. in the, the one <laughs> stage rehearsal that we had, I, I am supposed to be sitting the set. Part of the set was two opposing kitchens, Romeo and Juliet, Romeo's house, and then Juliet's house. And I was supposed to be sitting at the kitchen table in my kitchen. Well, I run off stage. And of course it's like the, the Guno Romeo and Juliet, which we did together in Vancouver, um, where Romeo and Juliet are basically on stage all night. And so I ran off, off one side of the stage to hop into the kitchen that I was supposed to re-enter in the next scene, 15 seconds later. I hop into the kitchen and it's Romeo's kitchen. <laughs> it looks nothing like what I'm supposed to be in. So then I have to work out in my head which way we're rotating so that I know which way I'm supposed to run to find my kitchen before it reveals itself to the public. And sure enough, I don't get there in time anyone that knows me knows I'm sort of um, height challenged. So I've got short legs and ran as fast as I could. And I realized quite quickly that I was not going to make this entrance. And so when Meister put down the chord that I was supposed to sing on, I just sang and it was an awe. And I just sang as I ran around backstage and all the stagehands were just laughing because I was booking it to the right place on stage but I had to run all the way around the theater to get there um made it luckily it's a fermata on that note so made it to the chair I was supposed to sit in took a big breath and continued with the scene but it was one of the more 
hysterical entrances I've ever made on stage. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to shift gears a bit and I'd love to sure. kind of go back a bit because of course, Vancouver audiences know you really well. I mean, I think all of us have seen you sort of grow up here and you know, you're always so loved whenever you're back in town. And Aww. I would love to hear how, as you know, as someone growing up in Vancouver, how did you get in, involved in opera? You know, it's so funny. The more that I think about it, I really realize that it was just teachers along the way, sort of one after another. And I love to sing. I love music, but I didn't know that. And so if I think about it, it really is sort of a passing of the torch from one teacher or mentor to the next that sort of led me to the path that I'm on. And that started in elementary school. I had um, a choir teacher. I went to Queen Elizabeth Annex as a young kid until grade three. And then when we went to the big school, Queen Elizabeth, there was a great choir program and a teacher there who noticed my love for music, noticed me singing as loud as possible at all times, <laughs> sort of loud and proud. She started giving me little solos and talked my normal everyday teacher into allowing me to come to both choirs, the junior and senior choir, on, I think, Fridays. So I basically spent half of the day every Friday in choir. And then that led to her calling my parents and telling them that they had a singer in the house, um, which they sort of laughed off and said, okay, thanks very much. And, and she invited them to the choir concert. And I think, I don't even think at that point they really realized that it was not normal for a kid to love singing that much because they're not musicians and nobody's particularly involved in playing or making music in my family. They're certainly, <laughs> they're certainly involved now, the poor things, they're all coming along. But then when I went to French Immersion at General Gordon, you know, there were, there were school plays and school musicals and I kind of fell into that group of people just because it was really the only place I fit. And so not only did I love making music, but also the kids that were involved in theater and in music in high school at Kitts High and things like that were sort of the only kids that were nice to me. And so it was a combination of finding my voice, you know, my actual singing voice, but also finding where I fit as a person in the world. And high school can be tough. And thank goodness I had, you know, amazing theater teachers and they went out of their way and put on musicals and things like that. So I was in Greece and Jesus Christ Superstar and things like that. And then ended up, um, <laughs> this is a famous story that's made the round, so some people probably have heard about it, but my mom is a scientist. She's a professor at UBC in the medical school, and my dad's a lawyer. And they didn't take the idea of becoming a professional musician seriously, I think because they didn't know it was really possible. So I remember saying to my mom in high school, you know, mom, some of my friends in the musical have a singing teacher and I kind of would like to take singing lessons to get better. And she said, okay, well, that's, you know, we can talk about that, but not until you have an A in math. Well, I knew that was unlikely to happen at any <laughs> point, um, at any point at all. And I was right about that because I'm still terrible at math. But I decided that I couldn't, wait much longer to be doing these singing lessons. So I lived in Kitsilano at the time and I decided I was going to get a job and pay for the lessons myself. So the only place that would hire a 16 year old with no work experience and big braces <laughs> was Dairy Queen. <laughs> so I started working at Dairy Queen after school, um, didn't tell my parents until they sort of walked by and saw me one night working at the Dairy Queen <laughs> and paid for lessons that way. And I got really lucky 
in that I met this teacher. I actually started singing lessons with Diane Spears, who is in the Vancouver Opera Chorus. And it was really nice to be reunited with her. She's really involved in the musical community in Vancouver and does all kinds of things. And it was really nice to be reunited with her at Vancouver Opera on Romeo and Juliet. Um, she was in the chorus and I was singing Juliet and, and it was a really special moment for the two of us to realize how far we'd both come and how much life had been lived, you know? So all the while I was also doing things like Vancouver Bach Choir and Gotta Sing, Gotta Dance, sort of strong-armed my parents into letting me do as many musical things as possible. And I ended up in the Kiwanis Music Festival circuit um, and absolutely loved that and was really blown away at the level of the other young singers in Vancouver. And that really pushed me to work hard. And I ended up getting a scholarship to the UBC Summer Music Institute, which is run by the Opera and Voice Department at UBC. And that's where I met Nancy Hermiston. And she ended up becoming my teacher in university. She invited me to apply to UBC. At that point, I still didn't even read music because I'd only started taking singing lessons about a year, a year and a half earlier. So uh, I thought I read music, but turns out I didn't really read music. I was um, relying on my ear a lot and ended up at UBC, was just hell-bent on doing everything I could to become a professional singer. I didn't even really know what that meant. I just loved this music so much. And so I went in my first and second summer to Europe with UBC. They go on tour and that was amazing experience, performing experience and did all kinds of operas. I think by the time I finished UBC, I had done a dozen roles in operas, starting with things like Papagena um, and moving up into bigger things uh, like Gretel and Hansel and Gretel and Nanetta and Falstaff. And that was, that really proved to me that I had to do this. You know, there was no other way about it. And so I decided to enter a few competitions after my third year at UBC because I just wanted some advice about my voice, repertoire, just some other opinions, other sets of ears. And the, the competitions ended up going very well for me that year. I think I was still young enough and eager enough, but I didn't have much self-doubt at that time because I didn't know enough to know what I didn't know. So I just went for it. And um, that led me to the Metropolitan Opera Competition, which then um, I ended up moving on to Seattle and then moving on to New York and then being very surprised when I made the finals in New York, which was the next weekend. I had only brought one dress because I thought for sure there's no way a 21-year-old kid from Vancouver is going to make the finals of the Met competition. So I had to go shopping and I went shopping with Nancy Hermiston, who'd flown in, um, and Roz Jones, who's another Vancouver name and a wonderful singer now on faculty at um, San Francisco Conservatory of Music, amazing soprano. And they were both kind of like fairy godmothers and took me to Bloomingdale's for the first time. And I got this beautiful gown that I loved and ended up winning the Met competition. And so that was really sort of a trampoline. And it just um, sort of flung me into a professional career very young. I went to Wexford just a few months later in Ireland, which was at the time run by David Agler. And that introduced me to a whole different world, which was this sort of European um, world of singers and Italian singers and Germans and Russians. And I mean, my eyes were just blown open. And then I um, had some invitations from some of the big American opera houses 
to come and join their young artist programs. But I decided through some really supportive, wonderful mentors in my life that it was best to stay at home, at least momentarily. I was really young and the idea of going to New York or San Francisco um, at 21, I think, I, I know now it would have, I, I don't know that I would be singing. It would have been too much um, and too much pressure, too much stress and politics and things that were way above my head at that point. So I had an agent in New York that told me I should go and sing for a young German man who was going to start running the opera company in Toronto. And I went to Toronto and sang for Alexander Neef, who is now leaving the company after 10 years, more than 10 years at the company. And we just understood each other. He understood who I was as an artist and I trusted him. Um, I sang in that audition all five of my arias. Usually a young singer has a list of five arias and you usually hear one or two, usually two, maybe three. But halfway through the audition, after the second piece, he said, okay, this isn't going to be an audition anymore. This is just going to be a concert. Sing whatever you want next. I want to hear your whole list. And then we went up and had a meeting and he said, you know, I really want to foster Canadian talent here. I think that in a little while you'll be ready to be on the main stage. So I'd like to give you Pamina next season as the second cast. So there won't be so much pressure on you. And then he went on to tell me other things that he thought I could do. And sure enough, in my three years as a young artist at the COC, I did uh, Pamina, I did Nayad in Ariadne of Noxos with um, Sir Andrew Davis conducting, I did uh, Laureta in Gianni Schicchi, um, Gilda in Rigoletto for the first time. Uh, I mean, just incredible opportunities that I never would have had anywhere else. And then, you know, I, I sort of went out into the world and started singing at companies across Canada. I was so fortunate in my second year as a young artist to have VO call. Tom Wright called me and he said, what do you think about Romeo and Juliet? Do you think you could sing Juliet? And I was like 23. And I said, of course, being 23, I said, sure. <laughs> and that was one of, that is to this day, one of the most special memories I have on stage, you know, to come home and to sing a role like that. And I loved the production and you know, to come back was amazing. And, and I, I cannot forget all of the amazing, um, opportunities that I had as the young person in Vancouver, like before, before I'd even seen an opera, I was able, thanks to the theater program in my school to do the Vancouver opera behind the scenes, like work experience program. And I remember watching rehearsals of Fanchula del West and, and, watching The Soprano with a whole bunch of other guys around and she's the only woman on stage in this great dress. And I just thought it was Mary Jane Johnson, who's from the South of the States. And she sang in this gorgeous Italian. And then at some point she messed up and she flipped into her Southern, uh, you know, her Southern, Southern drawl um, and said, Oh, maestro, I'm so sorry. You know? And I just thought this woman is fabulous. This is fabulous. I want it. This is all I want to do. And I asked to sing my first opera aria after being part of that work experience week. Then I did, um, before there was a young artist program at Vancouver, there was um, the Yakin project, which was like a young singers project. They bring in singers from all across the country um, who were just sort of on the cusp of a professional career or who had just started a professional career. And you would work with one of the best coaches in the world and the rest of the Vancouver Opera staff as well. 
And I did that program at like just after I won the Met at 21 before I'd really done anything. So it's really amazing to me coming from, you know, a city which is not necessarily known or renowned for all of the cultural music offerings on hand that actually there is so much and so much of that impacted who I am now and the fact that I'm an opera singer. I mean, if I hadn't seen Rosen Cavalier at Vancouver Opera, I don't know that I would have been spurred on in this way or Fentry Liddell West, you know, being back part of that whole atmosphere and being backstage and watching those rehearsals. That's, that really is where my, for, my foundation was formed, you know, and where I fell in love with the art form. If I hadn't seen live opera as a young girl in my hometown, I don't know that I would have ever even thought this was possible. So the more that I look back, I'm so grateful to have grown up in Vancouver for a lot of reasons, but musically, I just realized how fortunate I was, you know, and the community is so tight there. So that's a long way of telling you <laughs> how I became an opera singer. <laughs> Simone, may I ask also, I believe at one point you were a young Shakespearean, were you not? I was. I um, grew up in Kitts. I was sort of born and raised on the UBC campus because my parents were both students, but when they bought their first townhouse, it was in Kitts. And um, I think my parents were looking for things to get their loud firstborn out of the house for the summer. And of course, Bard on the Beach was basically around the corner. So I was a young Shakespearean there as a sort of preteen. And I remember the <laughs> funny thing um, is that the show for that summer for the young Shakespeareans was young Shakespeareans is a training program for young kids. Um, and you get to do a final performance on the Bard stage. And I remember even then, like, I'm such a born diva. I remember even then thinking, oh, we're going to be on the Bard stage. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't think any of the other kids, maybe a couple of them were excited about it, but I just thought that was the most fantastic thing ever. And it was Romeo and Juliet that summer. And of course, you know, the future soprano, all she wanted to do was be Juliet. But I was cast as the apothecary, <laughs> a male, one monologue delivering character. My heart was shattered, but I memorized that monologue and I gave it all I had. And um, I had this brown robe to wear. I mean, it was just the opposite of soprano diva moment. But I just remember the feeling of finishing that monologue and not messing it up and just thinking, this is fantastic. So Christopher Gaze actually introduced the um, the camp and sort of said a few words, as I remember, back in the day. And, uh, and then we would go on to do all of those Bard on the Beach shows, the three of us, um, for many, many years, the whole time I was at UBC. And I remember one in particular, and uh, you, I mean, my God, thinking about it now, you must have been 17 or 18, so young, uh, but you were singing Michaela's aria from Carmen and uh, Christopher came out on stage and, oh my God, what were his exact words? I, I, he, he's such a brilliant um, MC and, you know, he, he has a script, yes. but he also improvises and, he, you know, I mean, he's such a man of the stage that uh, it, it's fantastic. And I believe he said, we have a wonderfully talented young sinner. And then all of a sudden, he, he the audience sort of gasped and he kind of looked up and I think he took off his glasses and did this thing and we all lost it. The orchestra on stage, we were, I mean, I was shaking from laughter and then you, you had to go and sing this thing. 
And then um, fast forward, however many years later, um, last summer, you came back as a, as a very generous gesture and sang uh, in the opera and arias program. Christopher actually mentioned that he had introduced <laughs> you many years ago as a wonderfully talented young sinner, and here you were back. <laughs> you know, coming back to do those bard shows, it, it, my husband is also a singer, and his parents live in Kelowna. They're originally from the prairies, but they retired to the interior, uh, the Okanagan, which is lovely. And, um, you know, it means we can visit both families. My family is still in Vancouver. And so um, we were coming home anyway. And, you know, as I get older, like I mentioned, I realize how much mentorship had to do with the track that I'm on now and um, the life that I have. It just sort of was one teacher and one mentor after another. And a significant person in my life was Nancy. And, you know, her obsession with and love of this art form really rubbed off on me. Um, and her work ethic and sort of tireless, tireless pursuit of opportunities for her students and just the passion that she has for what she does really rubbed off on me. And and as we were making our plans for the summer, I thought, well, you know, if we go home a couple of days earlier, I could probably make it to do a rehearsal or two with less and the orchestra. And maybe I could sing a couple of things for Bard because it had been, I mean, it's crazy to say, but I did my first one when I was still in high school um, and a, you know, summer camp singer at, up at UBC. So it had been 15 years. Um, and I just thought, you know, this is a woman who has done so much for me and people still come up to me at, at Vancouver opera performances and say, I remember seeing you at Bard. You know, it's such a, it is a special um, kind of audience there and they love those opera and arias concerts with Vancouver Opera Orchestra and the UBC singers and I think they take a little bit of pride in having seen these young kids that then go on and and do exciting things so I just thought you know it wouldn't take much to do that and I would really love to do it so yeah it was it was really special it I felt very old <laughs> those kids are so young and I basically don't understand what they're talking about um, it's like they're talking in code sometimes when they talk about these apps and things. What's a TikTok? It's, oh, Simone, that's not a thing. That's an app. Okay. All right. Well, what is it? I'm not going to even ask anymore. I just sort of sit quietly in the corner and observe them like a another species. But <laughs> oh my gosh. It, was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful to do. <laughs> you mentioned two things, um, both of which I want to touch on. One of which is the mentorship. I know that another person who has been a huge um influence and mentor to you was the great Marilyn Horn. And I saw a, um, a quote, I believe, on, on a website that, a quote from Marilyn Horn, if I had to bet on anybody, I'd bet on Simone. That I mean, quite no pressure. Well, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> I can't believe that. Yeah, I think that was from McLean's article or something that, that they did a couple of years ago. And um, on I think sort of young Canadians making waves in, in all um, sort of all walks of life. But I couldn't believe that, you know, they kind of asked me, well, could we speak with her? Because I studied. So um, after, well, actually I should rephrase that because Marilyn always reminds me that she heard me first, not the Met competition. And she asked me to come to her summer program in California before I won the Met competition, which is very true and was a big vote of confidence for me. I mean, um, it's this incredible summer program called Music Academy of the West. And summer programs are 
really instrumental for young artists to kind of get out of their university or conservatory um, safe place and move and and go somewhere for the summer with different mentors and coaches and teachers. And there are often operas that they put on. There are a few in Canada and then lots in the States. And it's really um, kind of a rite of passage and an important step along the way because they're not professional perform- productions, but they're very different than a university setting. And, and um, she runs an amazing program in California. She stepped back a little bit, although she's still very, very involved at the Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara. So we met there when I was 21 um, that summer. And then I went back another two summers, the maximum that you was allowed for any possible singers, three summers. And um, then she, you know, we were working on a few things the first summer and she said, you know, you should just come to New York and work with me. And I thought, what? (laughs) And I was moving to Toronto to join the ensemble. So I thought, well, New York is not that far from Toronto. And I was lucky enough to get a wonderful grant from a Canadian music um, program And that allowed me, I remember getting the email while I was still in Santa Barbara for the summer. And I ran to her in the food hall (laughs) at the dinner hour and said, I got this big grant. I can't believe it. And I'm going to be able to come. It's the Silva Gelber Foundation. And it was like 15,000 Canadian dollars, which to me at that point was more than, you know, I mean, that was a million dollars in my experience. And I thought, well, I can, you know, I can stay on a friend's couch, one of the kids that, you know, one of the singers from Manhattan, and and I can have lessons all year with you with this money. And so that's what I did. I went down basically every other week to New York on my one day off a week from the COC and took lessons with her. And that continued for my whole young artist life there. So another three, four years. Um, yeah, another four years. And then, you know, I go back and visit family, well, friends that have become like family in Santa Barbara and always see her in the summer. We were just there last summer and she asked me to come and sing at a gala that was celebrating the renaming of part of of the main building on the campus there as the Marilyn Horn building. And so it was myself and Isabel Leonard, Quinn Kelsey and Ben Bliss. And they're all American, wonderful American singers and Warren Jones was playing. Um, and it was just the most incredible evening celebrating her. And I, I really felt so grateful to have been there to be able to sing for her. And it was all music that she had sung. So Copeland songs. And, um, luckily Isabel, who's the wonderful mezzo did all of the Rossini arias and things that, that Marilyn had done, but I did excerpts of Bohem because Marilyn was a soprano first. And it was just a really special night. And kind of the cherry on top of this amazing relationship that I've now had with her for over a decade. And I just called her two weeks ago to check in about some things and talk about, you know, just check in, see how she was doing with COVID and she's doing really well. Her granddaughter is at school in Santa Barbara and she's over the moon that she's close by. And, and she's been a real um, inspiring presence, both when it comes to music and when it comes to life. I remember. Um, you know, she really did take me under her wing. And, and one of the best pieces of advice she ever gave me about singing was that, you know, I asked her, how did you do all of these things? You know, she lived in Germany as a young girl. She worked with Stravinsky as a very young singer. And just everyone that describes her throughout her entire career talks about how fearless she was, 
Um, and she didn't seem to have any self-doubt. And I think as Canadians, we're used to kind of making ourselves, not making ourselves smaller, but we're not the one, the first ones to toot our own horn about things. You know, we're sort of understated as a people, um, I think. And she said to me, you know, Simone, the most important thing that you will ever learn in order to become a great singer is that you have, there has to be a tiny little piece inside of you that believes you can do it no matter what, you know, no matter what the next, whether it's the next small task or the next role assignment, you, there has to be a tiny voice inside you that never shuts off and tells you, no, you can do it. You can do it. And it may be, you know, it may be swayed. Sometimes it may have, you may have a hard time hearing it sometimes, but there has to be that little kernel inside you that believes that you're enough and that you can succeed. And that was a really important thing to hear because I, I think in my attempt to be, um, to not turn into a diva and to not lose the forest through the trees and not turn into someone I wasn't, I kind of was making myself small. And she told me, you know, you really just have to, you have to be your own biggest fan because at the end of the day, you're going to get notes and suggestions and critiques from the whole world. So if you don't believe in what you're doing, you're just, it's not going to happen. And you're just putting yourself up there for judgment all the time. And you have to believe that, that it's possible. And then the thing that she told me about real life was we were driving, I remember through Santa Barbara one day. And again, like 21 year old kid from Vancouver, I'm like, I am sitting in Marilyn Horn's Mercedes right now. What is this life? <laughs> you know. And at that point she had this big gold Mercedes. And I just thought this career continues to impress me. <laughs> like you know you can sort of unabashedly have a big gold car and you know that comes with the territory if you're Marilyn Horn um and so and of course she's the most down-to-earth person that ever existed she's you know an incredible human being and uh which you'll see in this next story because we were driving back to the campus where we we lived and um the singers did she was dropping me off and I said you know Marilyn like I can't remember how it, oh, I remember. I was asking her, how did you have, because she was one of the, one of the few singers in her generation that had, had a child that had a long marriage, um, which they're no longer together, but, and actually Henry has passed away, but, um, she had a family and she was Marilyn Horn. And that seems more possible these days, especially as I get older, all of my friends have families with few exceptions in this business. But at that time, I, especially as a young person who was devoting everything to music and not having all that many examples before my time that did that successfully, I said to her, how did you manage the balance of having a career and having a family? And she said, well, you're not thinking of not having a family because of career, are you? And I said, well, I mean, I just can't imagine it would be possible. I mean, how do you even do that? And she said, Simone, if you want to start a family, you must. There's no question. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. It doesn't, well, she did say you should probably not do it in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of your meteoric rise. But she said, if you want to have children, you must have children. And if I didn't have my daughter and now my grandchildren, what would I have? And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I mean, you're Marilyn Horn. You'd probably have 20 DECA recordings and all these amazing accolades. The whole world loves you. And Carnegie Hall and, 
you know, uh, the mad and all over the world, you've seen the world, you've put a major stamp on this art form that will never be forgotten. And none of that factored in at that point, you know, it just wasn't, that's not the way that she defines herself, which really blew me away and is something that I've thought back on. We don't have children yet, but hopefully one day, and we'll have to plan that very, um, in sort of an intelligent way, because my husband is also a musician. But I just thought, what an incredible mentor, you know, um, that she could give that beautiful advice, personal advice that may mean a slower career or may take a toll on my professional success, but she doesn't care about just my professional success, you know, and, and that being a testament to her, she cares about the individual. Um, she's just, she's, I could go on and on about her for days. She's an incredible example of someone who has her feet planted firmly on the ground and has done everything possible in this career and has never forgotten who she is, where she comes from or what's important. And that's, that's who I want to be. That's very impressive and very true, right? I mean, as artists, um, the world of music or whatever one's passion is, feels like a universe, but there is more to life. There is always more to life. It's human beings and our connections. You know, I think less, that's what we're learning at this time. It's been really interesting to see how friends and colleagues have dealt with the COVID situation and not being able to make music. It's a reminder that you have to have a life outside of music in order to make great music. And I think a lot of my friends who are really, really busy right now and in thick of it are being reminded of what's really important in life. And I sincerely hope that by the end of this period, we will remember how important music and the arts are to all of us. Um, I, I really hope there'll be a hunger for what we do because it really is the universal language and it connects all of us. And um, it's been very difficult not to do it, but I've also been trying to take comfort in the fact that I'm sort of filling my bucket with life things and um, that I'll be all the better as a musician and performer thanks to this time. Sometimes it's hard to remember, you know, some days are easier than others, but um, yeah, it's, it's important to have a life outside of music. Indeed it is. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about life? Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some of our listeners will know that, of course, you are married to the fantastic um, Canadian singer Gordon Bintner, bass baritone. Do you mind telling us a little bit about how you met and what's it like being married to a singer? Oh, my goodness. So I, Gordon is quite, in all outward respects, everything I thought I didn't want in a partner. <laughs> in that he's a singer, which I I remember for years telling my girlfriends, there's no way I could be with another singer. It's too much crazy in the same house. I'm, you know, two times as much crazy as any normal person could handle. Imagine having, you know, another uh, performer with all of the stresses and, and uh, passion that comes with that. He's um, a year and a half younger than me. I always thought I needed someone older and mature that was sort of had their life figured out and their head figured out and could help me um, figure out my life in my head. Uh, and he's, I mean, anyone that's seen him, he's, you know, six, four and blonde sort of Greek God, like creature. Um, and I always thought, you know, really handsome men, you have to be careful because they probably know they're handsome and probably make some choices that, uh, 
you know, I don't know. That's not necessarily fair. And there are definitely exceptions to the rule, but one can be too handsome and he's, you know, he's pushing the envelope there. <laughs> but the amazing thing about Gord is that he, he doesn't see himself that way. And he just is who he is. And he's a good, deeply honest, genuine prairie boy. And we've now both been all over the world and all over the world together and separately before we met, but he remains unshakable in who he is and what's important to him and his connection to his family and, you know, his love of music in such a pure way. You know, I was, I was introduced to this art form so early and there were so many voices in my head. And, you know, when you get to New York, there are a lot of politics and and when you get to big stages there there is a lot of sort of game playing that's going on backstage and and i i kind of bought into that and thought that was important because everyone around me seemed to be doing it and gore just doesn't do any of that like he doesn't he doesn't you know work a room at an after party he doesn't try and get the next gig while he's on the one he's on he's so focused on what he's doing and i think that comes across in his music making because it's so authentic and it's so deeply felt and prepared and he is the strong silent type and you know if you couldn't tell already by this point in the podcast I am the chatty type (laughs) I think I'm strong but I'm very very chatty so it's really sweet Marilyn actually when she first met him she was very nervous about me being with a singer she was with a conductor and she said it just doesn't work for the most part with two musicians. And she said, you know, most men in the business will want you to give up so that they can do their thing. And the, the gender balance is off. And that if the woman has a bigger success in their career, then men often have trouble with that and feel threatened by that. Of course, these are not necessarily the beliefs that I hold at this point in 2020, but they're very easy beliefs to dispel when you're with someone like Gord, because he wants me to succeed just as much as him, if not more. And he's more thrilled for my success than I think I am ever am. And she met him. We had a wonderful lunch in, in Santa Barbara before we got married. And she said, he went to get her another drink, actually another lemonade. And I said, what do you think? And she said, it's good. He lets you shine. <laughs> I said, yeah, you know, he really doesn't, he's quiet, but she says, no, he's perfect. He's absolutely perfect for you. He lets you do you and you bring him out of his shell a little bit. It's a beautiful balance. And I was terrified, but um, I think that's really true. We are very much opposites in a lot of ways, but we're also at the sort of fundamental core of who we are. We're the same person and the same things are important to us. And if the world were to end tomorrow and there were no more opera houses, we would just move to a little house somewhere and be happy and live our lives. It's, it's amazing. He's taught me so much about life work balance and really turning off when I'm off. And when we're with our families, we're just, we're just us. You know, he's the greatest person I've ever met. He's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So I feel very, very fortunate. And when we do do a gig together, so like we did the Elixir of Love together in Toronto, and they've asked us to do a couple of things over here in Europe together. And it's imperative that we have space because, you know, days before important rehearsals or performances are very high stress. And we need our own space to kind of get centered. And as you could probably imagine, I like to talk about all of the things and get it all off my chest. And he's sort of more in a leash, as we say in Germany, he's sort of more internal about things and likes to keep calm and quiet. So I need to have my room, my own room away from him 
that I can kind of spin out in and he can have a quiet room somewhere else. Um, and we have our little dog, uh, Gatsby, who's seven pounds of perfection and comes with us everywhere. And, um, for those of you who follow Simone, they will know that your Instagram handle is Gatsby's <laughs> Mommy, which I just love. I think that's amazing. It's my and, identity. Uh, I, <laughs> I remember, I guess when you first got Gatsby or around that time, you came and did that Magic Flute production that we worked on together, the mm-hmm. um, First Nations inspired one that Robin McQueen directed. And Gatsby came with you everywhere. And I remember after the Zitz Proba, we all went out, the cast to someplace up on commercial drive and you had Gatsby in the little bag. And I mean, you could literally take him anywhere and no one would ever know. I mean, he is the quietest little creature I've ever met and so sweet and doesn't seem to get weirded out by loud singing or anything. I mean, being in rehearsal hall all the time and just such a lovable little guy. I got him on a production of Rigoletto at Opera Hamilton. And, you know, I had opera playing when we arrived home, when I picked him up from from um, the the family that raised him. And at eight weeks old, he walked into my little apartment in, in Toronto to, you know, I think it was Otello playing. And then two days later, I took him to a rehearsal of Trovatore at the COC with Russell Braun singing in the entire brass section playing. And we sat in a box. I don't know if anyone at the Four Seasons Center knows this, so maybe hopefully <laughs> forgive me at this point. But we sat in a box and he listened to live, you know, horns playing. And and then he came with me every day to rehearsal in, in Hamilton, bless them for letting him do that. And so he just, he loves to come because it means he knows that if he comes to rehearsal with singing, there's going to be a 15 minute break, at least at some point, And he's going to be able to go and play with everybody. And he, that's like the best. He'll just stay in his little dog bed bag thing that I do take him in incognito to restaurants and bars and things after shows. Um, but then he, when he knows that everyone's on break, he'll just leap out and, you know, usually go to the kids chorus first, if there's a kids chorus and then hit the whole chorus and then the music staff, he's just, he's a little dream. So yeah, that was, that was another, it's so crazy how determined I was and how, um, sort of singularly focused I was. I had so much anxiety about getting a small dog because I thought it might get in the way of, you know, rehearsals or music making, I couldn't focus on anything else. And it was the best thing I ever did. I met Gord the next year um, and incredible things started happening for me. Just having this little bit of balance and something to love and take care of. I was really so singularly focused. I don't know that I would have been able to let a fully well-rounded life in had I not got Gatsby. I mean, that's, that's really quite intense and dramatic but I, I swear he changed my life this little tiny <laughs> ball of love <laughs> well anybody who's met Gatsby can attest that he's just the sweetest sweetest little guy and uh, he, is, isn't he? he totally is well Simone I have to say um, this has been such a joy to speak with you and thank you for letting us into your life you've been really generous with your time we love you in Vancouver and we can't wait to, to get you back. And we're hoping to get Gordon one of these days too. And maybe not at the same time. Who knows, right? Like, <laughs> We've got to get um, the whole family together. Totally. <laughs> totally. Gatsby. 
there is nowhere that's quite as special as making music in Vancouver. And especially with people like you that have been such an instrumental part of my whole trajectory as an artist and musician. And we've done recordings together. And I think we've done a couple of flute productions as I've made my way up from the smallest role to the biggest one. Um, And I know that it's a challenging time for people. I think it's okay to say that I have up days and down days. And it's really hard as a person that's so used to making music collaboratively. That's so much of the beauty of what we do is making music together and breathing together and creating something as a group. There are tough days, but I really think that if we just sink into the moment and acknowledge that opera fans are the greatest fans in the world and they're the most passionate about any art form in the world, you know, I'd, I'd challenge a hockey fan any day of the week with an opera fan. And I just think that the energy and emotion in the room when we get back into the theater, when the Queen Elizabeth is full again of Vancouver Opera patrons and supporters and audience members, we are going to realize how fortunate we are to be able to do this for a living and how fortunate we are as audience members to be able to experience that together and to have this amazing sense of community and musical community and I think we're all going to be okay if we just, you know, keep listening to a little music every day and Looking forward to the chance that we can all be together doing that. It's been so nice to chat with you, Les. I miss you guys all the time. And to hear your voice today has made my week. So I can't wait to get back there. And thanks so much for thinking of me. Thank you. Really, it's been a pleasure. And we wish you and Gord and Gatsby all the best in the meantime and hope to see you very soon. I hope so too. Stay healthy, stay well, and uh, lots of love to everyone that's listening. Join us again next week when we'll be speaking with soprano and pianist Rachel Fenlon. Raised on the west coast of Canada and currently based in Berlin, Rachel began her professional career at Vancouver Opera as part of the inaugural year of the Yolanda Amferis Young Artist Program. Her roles with VO have included Pamina in The Magic Flute, Mabel in The Pirates of Penzance, Zerlina in Don Giovanni, and most recently Susanna in Le Nozze di Figaro. Rachel's show, Fenlon and Fenlon, in which she is featured in the dual role as singer and pianist, has been presented across Canada and Europe. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback or suggestions for upcoming guests. You can reach us via email at online at vancouveropera.ca. And don't forget to check out our weekly special features on our website at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage. This has been Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla. As always, you can keep up to date with Vancouver Opera at vancouveropera.ca, where you can sign up for our e-newsletter or follow us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.